What is up, guys? Welcome to the Triage Method podcast with uh, a threesome this week, actually. Um, myself, Gary McGowan, my usual co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell, and we're joined again this week by uh, Richie Kirwan, who Kerwin, who was on, who was on a few weeks back, chatting to me. Um, we were talking all about about weakness, about loss of muscle mass, about sarcopenia, um, and we've got him back on today because we're going to talk about, I guess, a related topic. We're gonna focus, I guess, on obesity or adiposity and metabolic health, but also kind of tease out some of the details as it relates to the relationship between weight and health. Um, because I guess some of you listening to this podcast, you know, you'll be familiar with the concept that BMI isn't exactly perfect, but that actually goes in both directions. And that's something that we'd like to, to cover um, in today's podcast. So with that said, Richie, do you want to do a brief introduction to yourself? Apologies for my mispronunciation once again, um, and then we can get rolling. Yeah, in fairness, Gary, like, uh, I get it enough over here in the UK with the different permutations of my name, but I would have expected an Irishman to get it right at least. Gary's British. <laughs> Let's put it out here. Gary, Gary is British. Gary has British blood in him because his dad is British. Just saying. <laughs> No comment. All right. How's it going? Uh, Richie Kerman. Uh, I'm a uh, PhD researcher at Liverpool John Moores University. Um, and my main focus is uh, sarcopenia and cardiometabolic disease. And that is me. Very PhD nice. student, you mean, yeah? Yeah, we, they, 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 actually, they actually discourage us from using that term over here. Uh, you're PhD researchers now. <laughs> But yeah, I'm a, I'm a student, okay? I have a student card. I get all the discounts. I love it. All you right. love to see it. <laughs> right, right. Let's actually get this on track because we'll actually just talk shit all day. So the first thing I think we should take up or talk about is BMI in general because we touched on it. We've been doing like a kind of an obesity series. You know, there's, I think there's two episodes before this one when this comes out. Um, and we've touched on a few of these topics, but we haven't like done a deep dive or elaborated on them. So there's a lot of things that go into this obesity epidemic that we, we currently find ourselves in. And a lot of the critiques that get levied on that are valid critiques, both from the perspective of all oh, the, the measurements we use are bad or, you know, the, the, the issue isn't obesity, it's something else and whatever else, right? But what I want to do today is actually just tease out some of the finer details. And I think that starts in a place where we actually look at BMI, right? Because that is one of the critiques that get, gets levied at, especially doctors. And we want to do another podcast on that as well. But like doctors will use BMI to measure obesity, I suppose you could say, in terms of you go into your doctor, they go, okay, cool. You have a 30 BMI, so you're obese, right? They'll just use that. And people will critique that and say, oh, but what about this rugby player I know? You know, they have a, an, a BMI of 30 and they're not obese, right? But again, I think that kind of misses the, the forest for the trees here. So what, what's your take on BMI, Richie? Is it, a, uh, is it a useful tool? Is it something that we should be looking at in, in greater depth for obesity? Like what, what, what are you kind of thinking? I'm going to use the, uh, the most hated phrase in this industry, and it depends. Um, like, it, it really, really does. So, so, like, I suppose you have to ask, what is BMI? And it's, it's basically a, a measure that's, that, we be, that we've created, and it's uh, based off of our height and off of our body weight. And it lets doctors calculate a metric very, very quickly, because... I think the, the first thing we need to, to say is why, why do we even use BMI? And it is an incredibly quick measure to get. So if you go into a doctor's office, the doctor's going to have a limited amount of time um, to do anything with you. Um, and, you know, taking your height and taking your weight is something very, very quick. If they even do it themselves, they might just ask you what your height and weight are, and then they can calculate your BMI very quickly. And it puts you into these different categories that we, we've calculated um, which are related to health outcomes. Okay, so our, a healthy BMI is, I think it's 18 up to, and Gary, you call me out on any of these because you'll probably have them all up uh, uh, perfectly in your head. But uh, BMI from like 18 up to 25 is healthy or normal. Normal. 
Thomas. No, exactly. Yeah. Um, then anything 25 uh, up to 30 is overweight. And then from there on, you've got obesity and you've got obesity level one, two, three, depending on whatever uh, system you want to look at. And what people kind of tend to think of with BMI and people get very, very, I'm going to say, um, almost triggered by BMI is that if somebody is told, okay, you're in the overweight category, they're like, oh, Jesus Christ, doctors tell me I'm overweight. Like, you know, but for example, like you, like you mentioned there, a rugby player, like, geez, most rugby players are probably classified as obese by the, BM, you know, the, the BMI scale, but are they unhealthy? No. Um, so when people look at it on an individual level like that, people are like, oh, the BMI uh, measure is absolutely useless because, you know, it, it doesn't tell us anything. But I think the whole point of BMI is, is not to be, uh, helping diagnose somebody uh, as being healthy or not. The whole point of BMI is just like we said at the start, it's a very rapid screening tool. Okay. So if a doctor sees that you've come in and you might come in and you might have, uh, you might get your blood work done and you've got, you know, your, your LDL is high or HDL is low or something like that. You, you know, your blood glucose might be high and the doctor looks at your BMI and your BMI is in the obese category. Um, the doctor's kind of putting all of these things together and saying, okay, look, you're, you've got all of these risk factors over here. Um, it might be worth losing a little bit of weight because we know that weight loss can improve some of these risk factors. And on top of that as well, BMI is really useful if we look on a population level. Okay, so if we're, if we're trying to uh, compare two populations, say at two different time points. Like, so if we look at, you know, Ireland back in the 1970s and look at the general BMI and we look at the B general, the, the kind of the average BMI in Ireland today, we can use those to have a look at what's been happening in the population, even just from a, a weight to height perspective. And, you know, um, I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of getting out of this because there's a lot of stuff that we need to get into uh, about BMI and what, what makes the difference of it. But that's just to start off. Um, but I think one of the big issues with BMI, and hopefully we'll get into this, is BMI doesn't give us any indication of somebody's body composition. So it doesn't actually tell us anything about the level of body fat somebody has or their level of muscle mass, okay? Because it can't, because you cannot do that in the 30 seconds it takes to measure somebody's weight and height. Okay, and that's why BMI is still used today because it's a really easy, really quick measure. But it doesn't give us much information on an individual level. And that's where we do need more information if we want to get a, a better indication of somebody's health. So BMI isn't diagnostic. It's, like I said, a screening tool. Um, and like before we go any further, I suppose, like anybody want to add anything to that? <laughs> yeah, um, I think that like that is, that is something that we we brought up in the in the last episode of the podcast as well that like bmi is fundamentally like useful for public health in that as you say if you look back over the last 15 years in the trend in body weight in any given country or you just look at the trend in bmi you're getting information about the progression of obesity because the assumption is not that everyone gained muscle like people didn't just start getting jacked in the last 50 years so when you're carrying out uh, population level study study as a, a public health researcher you're getting a lot of information from the assessment um, of BMI and the closer then we get to the individual the less useful it's likely to be particularly when we have more information available so there's a little bit less signal coming from it however that doesn't make it totally useless because people do like to come back to the example of the rugby players but like where are all these rugby players I see walking around every day? Like, you know, they're rugby players. You know, they're, they're by definition, like elite rugby players are the outliers. So, you know, it's not like everyone is walking around with that much muscle mass. And even if you look at like natural bodybuilders, for example, people who are, you know, really trying to build as much muscle as possible, their BMIs don't tend to be that high when they're lean. You know, it's like, yeah, all right, you, you know, you have built a good bit of muscle, but you'll very rarely see a natural bodybuilder with a BMI that's obese, especially like class two obesity, unless they're also carrying a lot of body fat. So, you know, there's still even some signal in there. So yeah, as I, as I say, less useful at the individual level, um, but more useful at the population level. Yeah, and I'll just like to put in with this as well that I have a BMI of 25. So depending on how you want to view that, I am either overweight or just at the very top end of 
normal weight, you know? So again, it, like, it doesn't work really out of shape, like, you know? I would agree with you. I would definitely <laughs> agree with you, you know, but that's because the government has, you know, prevented me from <laughs> the government. <laughs> it's all out of my hands. Um, but anyway, uh, so yeah, okay, we've got it now. I think everyone understands BMI, like it's, it's quick, it's easy, you know, doctors can use it, like personal trainers can use it, whatever. You can get a, a quick assessment of what category are we in? Ooh, that should start getting some, you know, uh, cogs in your head turning and going, okay, I need more information to contextualize this number, right? Now, obviously you don't have that information on like a, a public health level, but if you're talking to an individual or you are obviously an individual yourself and you're thinking about this stuff, and I should mention like you can quickly calculate your BMI online. Like there's thousands of calculators that you can literally put your data in. But anyway, um, you can look at your number and go, okay, wow, I'm at 26, 27. Am I at risk? Right. And then you can actually start digging a little bit deeper into the, the actual context to that number. Right. And in a medical context, they might use other metrics. Like you, you said, Richie, you might have like uh, already context coming to the BMI number in terms of you might've got a, a blood panel done and they're checking your BMI because they've seen some numbers out of whack and they're kind of going, hmm, let, let me just look a little bit deeper. So they have some context to get that number. If you're just an individual and you're getting that number and you want to layer some more context on top of that, you can use stuff like, you know, again, you could be like, oh, I am a rugby player, right? But even that, like the context, the context of your exercise habits, uh, muscle mass, all that stuff, which we will get into, and it does obviously play a role. Even without that, you can still use like data to further contextualize that information. What I mean by that is like, you could use something like your waist to hip ratio, and that gives you more information. And we'll get into some of the, the, the reasons for that in, in, in a while. Um, but that, that's, that's a good, good proxy, right? And then on top of that, especially if you are, you know, a lot of people listening to this podcast, they go to the gym. Most gyms these days offer some sort of body fat testing. Now, we can definitely get into the accuracy of that, whether it's, you know, good or beneficial or whatever, but at least you have further context, you know? Like if you're coming up with a, a BMI of 25, for example, right? And you're kind of going, mm, am I in a bad place? You know, I don't really know how to look at that. It says I'm at the top range of normal. Am I getting into the overweight category? Or maybe you're at the 27, 28, 29. You're kind of going, mm, what, what's going on here? And you get further data, like waist to hip ratio. And you're like, okay, that seems to be good. And then you also get further data to that. And you go into, again, like a gym or whatever, or you do some like at home testing. Like I know a lot of like scales these days you can buy. They have like bio impedance already built into them and stuff. And again, not totally accurate, but further contextualize information, you can look at that and go, <clears throat> excuse me, you can look at that and go, okay, I have a, a BMI that's telling me 27, 28, but I look at this body fat measurement and it's saying 15, 16%, right? So it's, it's further information. Now, that doesn't mean that you're absolved of all sins and, you know, all is good. Like you could still be at that level and have issues down the road, your, your habits, whatever is going on, you're, you're, you're in some sort of, you know, deep calorie surplus. And just because you did this measurement right now and you're all good, that doesn't mean in five years time, 10 years time or whatever, you're also going to be all good, which again, something we'll, we'll get onto. So what are your thoughts on that, Richie, in terms of using context to actually look at this, this BMI number? Context is essential. Like, uh, like and th this is just one example that I, li I like to use with some people. Is if you were told that you had to give a, a let's say a very like a large population of people, if you had to test some of those, do blood tests on them, but we could only test the people who were at highest risk of let's say let's say we're doing a test for cardiovascular disease and we want to look at cholesterol but you can only test certain individuals because we've got certain economic restraints okay we don't have the money we don't have, or we don't have the time to do it even and you have to pick some sort of a measure that's going to pick individuals that you think might be at the highest risk okay bmi is one of those measures that you could potentially use okay why because it's quick because it's easy and because in again the general population we're not looking at athletes okay who are like you know you know outliers like you said um they're just the ordinary people who don't have a huge amount of muscle mass and if they are they have a high bmi there's a very very good chance again we're talking about risks we're talking about chance there's a good chance that they have a higher adiposity which is put them at a higher risk of these um these conditions so that's something that's absolutely essential um and like i said earlier bmi is not a diagnosis okay 
BMI, it's a screener. It's going to, it's going, it's going to tell us, okay, maybe we need to do some more tests with this individual um, to see how they're doing. And that's where all of these other measures can come in. Like there, there are plenty of better measures of adipotter. Okay. So you, you mentioned BMI and like, you know, I, I, I think BMI, like, um, no, sorry, not BMI, you meant bioimpedance. I think bioimpedance gets an awful lot of hate in the industry and it really shouldn't because it's getting better. Um, it's it's a, still a relatively fast uh, way of measuring people's um, body fat and muscle mass. Um, and if you compare it to something like uh, like DEXA, which is like, you know, a lot of people consider one of the gold standards, um, it's so much cheaper. You do not need to spend a couple of hundred grand on a piece of equipment that generally you're only going to find in a university or in a big hospital. Um, it doesn't take 15 minutes of lying perfectly still um, to, to get done. Uh, so, you know, th that's something that, you know, you could do. Waist height ratio, again, uh, another good one. And I'm, I'm hopefully, I'm looking forward to actually getting into, uh, uh, not, not waist height, but um, waist to hip ratio is a good one, which I hope we can get into a little bit more as well. Um, but there are so many other aspects of somebody's health, um, physical activity levels, uh, for example, other lifestyle factors that we, we need to take into consideration when we are talking about not even diagnosing, but just kind of trying to come to a better definition of somebody's state of health, which is very hard to define anyway. Do you have anything to add to that, Gary? Yeah, just a quick notice, just to, to add that, like these types of problems are apparent with all medical tests as well. And I think if people were aware of that, it might be less surprising that BMI isn't perfect. Like you're never getting like 100% uh, sensitivity and specificity like they're the terms that are used to describe medical tests often and it's no different when it comes to bmi like you're going to have false positives you're going to have people that the bmi scale says that they're overweight or they're obese but it's a false positive because maybe it's just muscle mass and therefore the risk isn't the same along with false negatives because people might be a normal weight or a healthy weight but they actually might have lots of adipose tissue you know and they might actually have very poor metabolic health and that also goes for so many different medical tests, you know, you've seen discussions about that related to coronavirus testing, for example, over the past year, you know, what, what level of false positive and, and false negative is acceptable. And then how you integrate that with other information is also really important because before you do any sort of medical test, you want to know why you're doing it. Like what's your prior, what's your suspicion of the problem that, that could be wrong already, you know? So for example, if we're talking about BMI and we know that someone has high blood pressure and they've got, you know, dyslipidemia and they've got other obesity related problems. And then the BMI is also overweight or obese. Then that's, that's additional information that makes as a subsequent diagnosis or decision-making process more accurate because you've put it together. So the context is really important. And I think just remember that that goes for like every blood test your doctor takes every scan you get in the hospital. And it's the exact same with BMI. It's never, ever just a case of you know 100% all the time well in some cases but very rarely right that's that's fair enough I think we've we've put that to bed hopefully people understand now that go on and ju just to go off on a, on, on a little bit of a tangent but like this is to do with something that like Gary's been talking about lately in his stories it, it, I think the fact that these tests aren't again quote-unquote perfect is one of the reasons that we have so many people um hating on medical science and yeah. saying that, you know, it's all, you know, basically not trusting it in it at all because they think that it's supposed to be perfect. And then when it gets something wrong, it's like clear evidence that it doesn't work full stop, which is kind of like a, a very um, reductionist way of thinking, I think. Yeah. But that's science. Like that's the whole point. It's, it's never perfect. That's kind of exactly. the whole point of doing science is that you reduce uncertainty over time. But obviously I do understand why people, um, assume that you know if if one thing goes wrong, then that means the whole institution of science or the process of science is just worthless. Because if you haven't understood that in the first place, the scientific method, then yeah, I get it. You know. Yeah, and it's also like scientists and medical professionals themselves. It's it's, yeah. it's a problem that they've created by making it out as if like the science is infallible. And then as soon as you see a little little chink in that armor you're like oh my God, you're not infallible you know so like again like you can understand how the, the general population is like oh i saw this article by someone that you know said they're a doctor even though it's like a doctor in like i don't know some fucking chiropractic or something and, and 
it's like, oh, they, they're a doctor as well. And they said this and, you know, you get conflicting information and like even our, our supposed like sense making organs in society, like the media, the, the government, whatever, like they don't put out the best information and or they don't put out the best information in a timely manner. So again, like you can understand how the general pub- public gets misled on these things, especially like if we're bringing it back to this, like obesity stuff and like the, the BMI stuff, like you get like sensationalist headlines in uh, the, the the media portrayal of you know whatever it is and people then think that like the the, the knowledge that we have is 100 percent like that's that's it and then they try to apply that for example like you'll see a lot of people say that like calories in calories out that equation doesn't work because i tried it and it didn't work for me so therefore the equation is wrong the science is wrong it's something else right but again it's like that's that's because they didn't get correct information and they weren't able to apply that information in a correct manner right and obviously that's a that's a much larger discussion but what i want to do is bring this conversation along to kind of push off on that uh waist to hip ratio stuff and i want to bring in two things to discuss that and the first one is this this idea of like metabolically healthy obese individuals right and that's somewhat not related to the the waist to hip ratio but then i also want to go on to the the, the role of, we'll call it like central adiposity, uh, visceral fat, and he, what, what that's kind of doing uh, to the body, I suppose. Um, and then obviously that is where this, this waist to hip ratio does come in. If we're talking about like central adiposity, you know, we'll call it stomach fat. And um, if you will, it's like the lay, layman's term would be like, oh yes, yeah, so I have fat around my stomach. And obviously that's potentially indicative of also fat around your internal organs. You know, obviously it's not perfect because like you could have a fat like fat over your your rectus abdominis for example but not have a lot of fat uh, in and around your organs so there are some differences in terms of where this this body fat is distributed and this is also when you look at it this is why males have you know we'll say worse health outcomes uh, than females because males generally tend to hold more fat in this this visceral area this this kind of central adiposity and that's the kind of phenotype of you know your typical male um, and whereas that's not the same with females they seem to hold it in more beneficial areas of their body like their ass and their boobs and i don't mean that in a male chauvinistic way it's like that's just like more beneficial for health to have your fat in those areas you know um but anyway what are your thoughts on that starting with the 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 metabolic metabolically healthy obesity phenotype because this like this is a thing and this is like i was saying like you can have the media portrayal of this saying, and like it, you, you then feel vindicated if you are an obese individual, you have the media portraying that, oh look, science has proven that you can be metabolically healthy and obese, right? So you don't worry about diabetes, don't worry about heart disease, don't worry about these typical um, diseases of obesity. Once you're metabolically healthy, like and we, we've shown here that there's metabolically healthy obesities or obesities and metabolically healthy obese individuals and um, so we're absolved we don't have to deal with it it's not an issue is that is that reflective of the science do you think that's a, a good interpretation of what we currently know I, I suppose before we even get into it the first thing to to talk about is like what generally happens with obesity and when it comes to risk for other disease. And we, we, we know that there is an increased risk of cardiometabolic disease and other diseases like cancer as well in individuals who are obese. So people who people are at a greater risk of developing diabetes if they're, if they're obese. They're at a greater risk of developing um, ischemic heart disease if they're obese as well. Uh, and then we, if we look at some of the risk factors, okay, um, we know that individuals with obesity in general um and i'm going to be using that word a lot here in this conversation i think today um they've got you know uh like like gary mentioned earlier dyslipidemia so they've got like let's say higher ldl cholesterol lower hdl cholesterol higher triglycerides um they've got higher fasting glucose uh higher fasting insulin they've got um higher blood pressure okay so that's what normally happens but We've also got this subset of the obese population that doesn't have, uh, let's say, levels that, okay, and I'm going to say right now that are as bad um, as in the general obese 
population. Okay, and they're called what what's now called the metabolically healthy obese phenotype. Okay, um, so it's basically somebody who's got obesity, so who who is who has a lot of body fat on them, but they're they don't seem to be suffering from to the same extent as other individuals. Um, and I think one of the, the 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 things is like you mentioned, people say are, are using the metabolically healthy obesity. Say there you go. It just goes to show that you know having fat on your body doesn't make you unhealthy. And I think that's, again, you know, a very, very simplistic view. It's, 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 it's not saying that. It's just saying that, because we know in general it do, that it does, just saying that there is a, a population of people that don't seem to be suffering to the same extent that others are. And I think we need to think about, like, how are we defining metabolically healthy obesity? Um, and, and the first problem is there is no consensus definition. Um, but one that I particularly like to use, and, I, and I'd love to get um, y- your opinion as well, that's about this is like, so there's the definition of metabolic syndrome, which is uh, identified with two or more of either um, some form of poor glucose control, so elevated fasting glucose or um, some indication of uh, insulin resistance, uh, low uh, HDL, high triglycerides, um, uh, high blood pressure, and then uh, a high waist circumference. But in, in this case, we, we wouldn't talk about waist circumference just because we're talking about obesity here. Um, so if you have two of those, that classifies you as having uh, a metabolic syndrome, okay? And if you have, so basically, if you don't have two of those and you are obese, you are classified as being metabolically healthy obese. The issue is we're, we're talking about certain cutoff points here, okay? And people like to talk in black and white. And I talk about this a lot. Like people, people's thinking is very, very black and white in general, because it's easier to think of things in black and white. But I think we we need to look at obesity and metabolic, the metabolic health within obesity as a spectrum, as opposed to being, you know, either you are or you aren't. Okay. So what we, we see within, and let, uh, by the way, lads, I, I know I'm talking a lot, so at any point, jump in and tell me Good to shut point. up. Right? <laughs> um, um, like it, within that uh, spectrum, uh, we, we have individuals who are obese, okay? And who are classified as being healthy because whatever markers we're looking at don't fall, or don't go past the cutoffs for being unhealthy. Um, but one thing that we don't consider is that they may be within a range of values. So we know that we have certain ranges of values for, for cholesterol uh, or, um, or for blood sugar that, that, that you know, qualify as like people almost look at it as good or bad. But somebody who's obese but classified as metabolically healthy may be at the extreme end of healthiness within a, an otherwise unhealthy phenotype. And on top of that, we also need to consider that we've got these individuals, we're looking at them at one point in time, and we don't know what is going to happen to those measures of, of, of health, you know, five, 10 years down the line. And I think we have enough evidence to say that if the metabolically health, healthy obesity phenotype, that it may be a transient state. Because we, we do know that if you f- find individuals who are obese but are metabolically healthy, they have a much higher risk of transitioning to a metabolically unhealthy phenotype, you know, five or 10 years down the line. So we, we, we have like some solid evidence on that as well. And also, if you look at a me- metabolically healthy population and you compare them to an otherwise healthy uh, normal weight or normal BMI population, you tend to see that the blood work in the metabolically healthy population is still not as good as the, the metabolically healthy individuals of normal weight. Um, I'm going to stop there because I need to take a breather. Very joined to add to that. Yeah, I, I think like, I think this again comes back to an issue of like, what are we actually measuring? And it, these are the inherent limitations of practical medicine, practical research, etc. Like if your doctor, if you go to your doctor and they're taking bloods and they want to send them away to biochemistry for assessment that they get them back you know you're going to say all right you know we want to get a basic lipid panel i want to see right what the glucose is like you know you're just kind of get a, getting an idea you take the blood pressure and they're giving you some signals of an individual's cardiometabolic health 
But even when you have those things, as Richie met, mentioned, you know, the, you're assessing for the, the rough criteria for metabolic syndrome, there's still other excess criteria that are not captured within that. Like, for example, a measurement of, um, an actual measurement of um, insulinemia or, or, and or insulin resistance is often not within that. You'll have blood glucose within the criteria, um, and sometimes they'll include insulin resistance, but it totally uh, it totally varies or changes rather those that are classified as metabolically unhealthy when you add in or out that measurement of insulin resistance. And depending on the number of criteria you look at, again, you see that the proportion, the more stringent you make the recommendation, the proportion of people with obesity who are cl classified as metabolically healthy begins to decrease and decrease and decrease um, down to very um, small levels in the single digit percentage of people with obesity who are actually metabolically healthy with a very strict uh, criteria for that. So there are excesses beyond the things that we typically measure. And even if you were to take that further, like when you do a, a very basic um, lipid panel, let's say, and, and like a lot of studies will just say LDLC is your characteristic for, cardio for cardiovascular risk, for example. However, we know already know that obesity, particularly as central adiposity is associated with changes in the actual um, characteristics of the lipids themselves, like the like atherogenic dyslipidemia and remodeling of LDL um, and other particles, which again can modify the relationship between that reading of LDLC um, and one's cardiovascular risk. So there's no need to get into all the nuances of that, but rather just to say that there are other things that aren't measured that can account for an excess of risk. And as you say, it is seen to be a transient state. In studies that range from like three to 10 years of follow-up, you do see people moving in that direction of metabolically unhealthy obesity. And you know, even when you do account for the risk factors, and this is an important point, when you account for the risk factors of, of metabolic ill health, there still seems to be an excess of risk that is directly attributable to the presence of the excess adipose tissue itself. And that's a really important point because adipose tissue is not benign. It's not just a, a storage unit. It is very much a functioning organ in and of itself and can exert its own pathological effects on top of uh, the effects that it's having and those metabolic parameters that we're measuring. Yeah, and just, just the way I kind of conceptualize it, and again, I'm stupid, so take that for what you will. Um, like I look at it like any other disease. Like if you, if you went to your doctor and he was like, oh yeah, you have a little bit of cancer, like and we're not going to do anything about it. Would you take that as a, a good diagnosis? Would you take that as like, that's fine. Like we, we, we measured some, it's not like metastatic. It's not going around the body. So we're just going to leave it. Now, obviously in some cancers, that's potentially what they do. But any other disease, like if you had, I don't know, any other disease, like uh, you're like, oh yeah, your pancreas is only functioning at 50%, but you're still within the reference range here. So uh, we're just going to leave it, you know, like no, no other disease pathology or pathogenesis or whatever you want to talk about or think about it. Like, would you do that? You know, now obviously again, there are obviously points that's being a bit hyperbolic. Like if you're at, you're with, well within the range and everything else is good, blah, blah, blah. And one value is a little bit out. It's no big deal. But if we know, and again, I think the science would suggest that we do know um, that this phenotype is transient and it leads to a situation down the line for the vast majority of individuals. And like Gary said, even, even though when you measure it transiently here, um, if you change the criteria a little bit, even those individuals don't fall within this metabolically healthy obesity phenotype. And if we do know that over time, they seem to actually develop all of the same things that other individuals uh, who are obese develop and um, who aren't metabolically healthy, why would we take that as a good like measure or a go why would our interpretation of that be all is good? There's metabolically healthy, obese individuals. So that's great. You're right. We don't have to worry about it when we know that the vast majority of people, this is just a transient point on the way to a disease state, you know? So again, like I just think of it in terms of any other measurement any other disease pathogenesis, like your doctor goes, yeah, your, your blood cholesterol is, you know, 70% in the reference range, but it's not a good p place to be at because of whatever. And um, like, you just take that as advice and go, I'm not going to do anything about that because it's within the reference range. Like, even though you know that there's heart disease in your family or other individuals with these metrics or whatever tend to go on to have these poorer outcomes, you know? So like in my mind, 
I'm just, I view this as this metabolically healthy obese phenotype as great. We've caught it early. Let's start treatment now to get ahead of the curve. You know, in my mind, like that's why I use the cancer one in the start, even though obviously they're, they're not the same. I'm like, if you catch it early, like you're in a far better position to deal with it rather than if you catch it late, you know? So it's the same in my mind, I'm thinking of this metabolically uh, healthy obese phenotype. Like you've caught it early. Great. Now's the time to bring in these interventions and get into an even better place so that we don't end up metabolically deranged down the line. What are your thoughts on that? Either of you. One thing I just want to say on that is like a lot of, I'm I'm going to be very cautious with the, with the, with the wording I use here. Not being cautious with your wording. This is our podcast. <laughs> um, I think uh, a lot of the problems comes from um, the reference ranges that we use within mm-hmm. medicine as well. Um, so, for example, uh, you know somebody can be okay, Gary. You you can you can give me the exact numbers on this. Um, is it LDLC under one thirty milligrams per deciliter that's classified as not being a problem? Yeah. Like with, well, again, it depends. Like if you ask a cardiologist, they're going to be like, no, fifty. You know. <laughs> but yeah, like that's the kind of conservative. Yeah. So like if somebody goes and gets their, their cholesterol measured and they're like, you know, they're between 70 and 120, you know, like the, the doctor's going to say, oh, you're grand. Absolutely. No problem. But like, we know for a fact that if you can keep your LDL cholesterol very, very close to the, the low, you know, as low as possible, basically, you're reducing your risk of developing atherosclerosis as you get older. Right. So we, we've got a lot of, again, I, the word I was worried about using is arbitrary. Like, you know, obviously a lot thought has gone into, um, you know, developing the reference ranges that we have for different values, but to an extent, they are arbitrary as well, you know, and we have quite wide ranges. And if somebody is at the extreme end of one range, almost bordering on to, on the, the, let's say the diagnostic criteria. Yeah. That's a point where somebody should say, okay, look, I don't like the fact that my, like, even though my cholesterol is, is technically healthy, I don't like it that it's that high maybe I should do something about that. And, you know, um, like sure, Gary, I, I was speaking with you earlier this week, like, you know, that might mean statins, you know, for some individuals, you know, like, you know, in an older vision going on a, a high strength statin to, to reduce their, their, their risk of developing atherosclerosis in a few years or reducing the risk of an event. That's something that we have to think about. Um, so yeah, like I, I'm, I'm completely uh, witch of Patty, you know, like it, it, we do these tests and we do these, are younger as well to, to hopefully give us a bit of an indication of how we're doing and we should be using that information if we can or you know to 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 live a, a healthier lifestyle if, if, if that's somebody's goal yeah and i think that i think that does touch on an important um important consideration when you're thinking about health in general because again all the time like you use the phrase arbitrary as it relates to cutoffs for different blood tests for example and like they are arbitrary in some ways in that because we're not talking about like a specific disease like there's not like an on button and an off button it's the same with like fasting blood glucose and and oral glucose tolerance tests like at what point are you diabetic you know where do we actually draw the line and those types of things tend to change over time and you know you'll have some as i say you know you'll have cardiologists who are you know, in favor of that low, that LDL cutoff being much lower, you'll have others saying, ah, well, you know, we can be a little bit looser with it. And ultimately it's, it comes back to philosophy. It's like how, how much, how much um, of a, a trade-off in health are you willing to actually accept? How much risk is um, tolerable, tolerable to you? Because like, if you look at the evidence, like it's relatively clear that pre, like, although it, it's one of those rare cases, like the lower LDL is the better, like it genuinely seems to be a very, a fairly linear thing down to, down to levels that are very low and very difficult to achieve through diet. And that is one of those things where it's like, is that all you care about in your life? Like, are you willing to accept that the, the trade-off in what that might mean for your diet and things like that? Um, to have to try and get to that really low level like are you going to go on a whole whole foods plant-based diet from today just to achieve that level but then you have to ask yourself okay but how easy is it going to be to get my protein intake to preserve my muscle mass then you know how do I factor that in and how do I factor in the importance of you know 
and eating with my family and enjoying my food. And you know what? I do have some salty meals every now and then, and maybe that's not 100% the best for my blood pressure. And these are the decisions that you have to make. And the same thing comes back to obesity again, because we can talk objectively about the risks associated with obesity, but that does not actually necessitate action. Like if you're willing to accept a little bit of excess uh, risk um, and you feel like, you know what? I've tried dieting a few times. It hasn't worked for me. I'm in the overweight category. There might be a bit of excess risk, but that's life. I'm focused on other things. Like that's not something anyone is judging you for. So I think that's something that people need to understand as well is that you can understand these things objectively without needing to necessarily take action. Because I think what some people do on this subject in particular is try to just um, justify their prior beliefs. So for example, um, if you are someone who's carrying a bit of excess weight, and it's, it's obviously nice to hear that there's actually nothing uh, wrong with that, that it's completely healthful. Uh, whereas if you can just be objective with yourself and say, you know what, there probably is a bit of excess risk, but people who drink more at the weekends, they also have excess risk. People who have really stressful jobs and are willing to do that for 50 years, they also have excess risk. And these are life decisions and there are trade-offs everywhere. You know, we use that phrase in every podcast and that's health, you know. Wonderful. Um, right. So uh, the one thing that I also want to touch on with this, and I think it, this is why this whole conversation is structured the way it is when we touched on obesity or sorry, BMI first. There's a structure here. Well, not really like, um, no. Um, but anyway, uh, the, the way it's kind of structured when we touched touch on uh, the BMI first, and then we kind of went on to the metabolic the healthy obese individual and you might have noticed that one of the things we touched on was this idea of muscle mass right and this is somewhat we'll call it protective uh, against these obese negatives whatever you want to think of it like right um and it is one of the, the the modifiers in this whole equation and the fact that bmi doesn't adequately account for muscle mass can also be leading to a situation where we look at these individuals who are there they get put down as obese like someone has a, a 32 bmi right but they're a, a very large muscled individual right and um, and they could go in and they would get their, their, their blood tested, get all the other metrics tested. And they might come back, especially like we use the example of like a rugby player, like they might come back and go, yeah, your, your fasting blood glucose is not you know, perfect, but it's not in any way bad. You know, your, your blood pressure, like, again, it could be better, but it's not bad, you know, and all these other health metrics, whatever you want to, the criteria, whatever one you, whatever you want to use, you look at it and you go, yeah, like you're not in a bad position. So this individual, because of their high levels of muscle mass, they get categorized as metabolically healthy obesity, right? And this can kind of confound all the other stuff because someone else will then look at this and go, oh, there's metabolically healthy obese individuals and I'm one of them. Like, you know, it's like they, they, they'll look at it and they'll be like, they, they don't, they don't have the context for that in terms of, they don't realize that this is also including the category of these rugby players who have huge muscle mass or like, again, like pick whatever quasi strength sport um, like um, American football, for example, or like even powerlifting, like an actual strength sport. Like you have individuals now powerlifting is a little bit of a different case because they're not actually doing a lot of like cardiovascular work on top of their strength training. So they're probably more likely to see negatives at a lower BMI, but obviously that's not like across the board. Like you could still be in phenomenal metabolic health um, just from doing your triples. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know what I mean? So like w without that context, without realizing that, you know, this is also including rugby players when we talk about metabolically healthy, obese individuals. And it's also including these like strength athletes who have a large degree of muscle mass. Right. And one of the questions like I kind of think to myself is if we had a metric for muscle mass, and I think we can somewhat use, you know, other metrics, like I said, you can use like bioimpedance, get an idea of where body fat is at, and then, you know, work out roughly where muscle mass is at. Like you could use a DEXA, but as you said, like, you know, there's constraints on that. Like I kind of think, is there a way to going forward have some sort of qualifier when we do? studies on metabolically health healthy obese individuals we have to use some sort of body fat uh criteria so that we can you know get rid of the the signal from the noise and 
understand the actual role of muscle mass in this whole phenotype, right? Like, I, I don't think it's the case because I, I think it is just the case of like, we're in a uh, disease pathology or pathogenesis. Like it's, we're in a certain point in this disease uh, pr uh, progression, you know, that's what I, I would think. But I also can't say for certain that it's not a case that a lot of individuals went in with a high degree of muscle mass and threw off this number in terms of this metabolically healthy obesity phenotype. <clears throat> now, again, I don't think that's the case because like Gary said earlier on, it's like you don't see these huge individuals just walking around with huge men's like 18 inch arms walking around going like, oh yeah, like I'm obese, but I'm jacked as well. So like you don't really see that a lot. So I don't think it's the case, but w w what are your thoughts on this, uh, we'll call it this muscle mass qualifier in this whole idea of metabolic healthy obesity and then also just obesity in general? If you, uh, if you threw that spanner into the works, it might upset a lot of people. Um, it would be really, really interesting to, to, to look at that. I'm, I, I, see, the thing is we need to know how are we going to, um, how are we going to measure muscle mass, for one thing. Okay, like what, what device are we going to use? And then we need to talk about how are we going to categorize it. Okay, because so I did, I did a post uh, last week and it was, looking at skeletal muscle index, which is um, skeletal muscle in relation to somebody's total body weight. Okay. And that's a potentially useful metric. Uh, and it was the relation with um, insulin resistance. So more muscle was related uh, to better insulin sensitivity. Um, so it's something that we need to take into consideration. Whether we should be looking at this for certain cutoffs, I don't know. Um, I don't know how useful certain cutoffs would be, um, because if we just let's let's just talk on a kind of a public health level right now, and if we talk about kind of general recommendations for everybody, I don't think we should be saying to everybody, okay, you need to get your uh, BMI here, and you need to get your body fat here, and you need to get your muscle mass here. I think we should be kind of looking at certain behaviors that we can help with individuals and we can talk about behaviors that improve muscle mass. So getting people to do resistance exercise, getting people to do exercise full stop, yeah. getting people to do resistance exercise if we can and making a few tweaks to diet as well that can help improve that might be, um, might be beneficial. But yeah, muscle absolutely does play a huge role in, in health, in cardiomyopathy. <laughs> I got it. Like, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, Gary and I, we, we've had this conversation already on the podcast about how just how many different aspects of our health muscle plays a role in. And it's going well beyond the cardiometabolic side of things. You know, it, it's go, it goes into mental health. It goes into, you know, your actual skeletal health and things like that as well. Um, so, yes, we, we absolutely need to consider that. And I think the more research that will be done in the future where we have better measures of muscle and body fat specifically, as opposed to looking at this generally gross BMI or just looking at waist circumference, or, um, you know, it, it's going to give us better information. It'll help us better uh, tailor the advice that we can give to people in the future as well. I think, I don't even know if I've answered your question. You did. Gary, do you mind to add to that? No, no, that's all good to me. You look like you wanted to jump in there. You were like, uh, I, I was, I was going to add a comment and I was like, oh, that's fairly low value, but I'll add it. No, sure. I was just going to say, I was just going to say that like you did hear this like a, a number of years ago, it was a topic of discussion. I haven't kept up on, on reading about it really that much, to be honest, but I remember there used to be a lot of talk about the more, the mortality benefits of obesity and that, you know, there was the kind of paradox as you get to older age, but that when you actually go on to account for or look for why that might be the case, it seems to fundamentally be uh, the, the extra muscle mass that they're carrying that reduces risk of, of sarcopenia and associated illnesses that we talked on, about on the previous podcast. Is that is that fair from your understanding? Is that kind of what, you, what you've seen as well? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the obesity paradox, um, it, it's really... It's really uh, evident in, in cardiac populations, especially, okay? People who've suffered some sort of a cardiac event, basically somebody who's got a higher BMI, they've got much higher survival rates, lower mortality rates than those with lower BMIs. And it, it does appear that muscle is the, the indicator. Those with actually the, funnily enough, those with the highest muscle and lowest, um, and high, highest fat as well, 
So together seem to have the lowest mortality rates, but those with the lowest muscle and lowest body fat together. Okay. So it's a weird combination have higher mortality rates. Um, I think the, the interesting thing about the obesity paradox is it is exclusively a remnant of BMI. Okay. It, it doesn't exist with any other measurements. It's just because, and again, this goes to show, you know, like that BMI is not applicable in all situations. We can't <clears> use it in all situations. So it's a perfect example of that. And people were wondering what the hell is going on in here? Why is it that these people with this higher BMI, why are they living longer? And, you know, when we actually look at it, it's, it's, it's not down to BMI. It's down to much more important factors like muscle mass, like you said there. Yeah. So that's a, it's, it's a really good point you brought up. Okay. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much covers all that I want to cover. However, you're not done now, right? <laughs> because what I want to cover, because this is, this is our obesity series, right? So we want to cover things from, from all angles and get an idea of other people's like myself and Gary, we have similar enough viewpoints on a lot of things. Like Gary's definitely, far stupider than I am, but uh, <laughs> no, uh, uh, like we have very similar viewpoints. So like, I don't want to just be in an echo chamber with me and Gary going like, oh yeah, like that's, that's the focus we should have, or that's what we should think about or whatever. Right. So with this obesity problem that we have in society, right. And taking all of your knowledge, all that you studied, your own personal bias in terms of, you know, where you would like to see research potentially investigate something or, society change what do you think we should be looking at in terms of as people who disseminate information right what do you think um we'll say governments should be looking at like we've got a public policy and that can also include um you know funding for different you know investigations and like scientific endeavors or whatever like what what do you think those two things, like how should, how should we approach this as individuals, both myself and Gary, uh, how should governments approach this? And then also how should the individual who is trying to navigate the world themselves in terms of, you know, navigate this obese uh, environment that we find ourselves, obesogenic environment that we find ourselves in, like those three aspects, what are your thoughts there? Now I know I'm putting you on the spot going like, here, think of everything you've ever thought and yeah. <laughs> solve it all like you know um but what are your thoughts on that i suppose you could start with us say that we're we're too stupid to ever solve this issue by ourselves if you wish um but what 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 are you what are you thinking my my, my first question is what is this issue the obesity problem in society you know? oh god jesus christ <laughs> right we're going okay we're going there um i i think there's not much that yourself and and, and gary or any individual um, let's say people who are involved in science communication can do. Okay. It, it, it's a tough one because the problem is a public health issue. Okay. Now you lads put out great information. There's, there's other people that put out a load of great information um, about, you know, the health implications of obesity and, you know, the, the effects of diet on, on, on different aspects of health and fitness as well. Um, and, we are going to have a very, very small subset of the population that pay attention to that stuff. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the information that you guys put out is brilliant. Like, you know, it, and it, it can help those individuals who are willing to, to put in an effort. Like, and, and this will kind of come down to the, the whole personal responsibility versus public health thing as well. But I think the obesity epidemic is very, very much a public health issue. And I don't know how the hell it's going to be solved, but we can talk about what are causing the issues and the, the issues are, are fairly clear. You know, people are eating far too much and you have to ask why are eating people and, and, and not exercising as well. And we know people aren't exercising because it's just the way society has gone with our jobs for one thing. Okay. Um, people work long hours sitting in front of a computer as we are doing right now. Um, but I think the main issue is that we need to really, really focus on the, the food situation. And we are in uh a perfectly obesogenic environment. We have access to incredibly, you know, hyper palatable uh, foods that provide very, very little satiety value, um, oftentimes not providing um, a part- particularly nutrient dense um, uh, food, you know, foodstuffs to us. It's just easy for us to overeat 
Um, and we are, yeah, it, it's, it's like, I have to say this to people, maintaining a healthy body weight, you know, whatever the hell that means in, in this day and age is fucking hard. Okay. For, and, and that's why we have an obesity epidemic and we need to get to like, a lot of people don't like hearing this, but you know, we would probably need to get to a point where we do need some sort of government invo- involvement or government regulation to, let's say, make our environment a little bit more conductive to maintaining a, a, a healthier body weight and, and, and better activity levels. So that might come down to advertising. It might come down to different standards with the foods that are marketed or, or you know, uh, different levies on different foods. I don't know. I'm just a feckin' student, as we said at the start of this, okay? All right, this isn't my field. But like, I have to be very, very honest. The, the obesity epidemic is not going to be solved by, you know, flipping sarcopenia researchers or, you know, researchers into metabolic health or cardiovascular disease. At the end of the day, the people who are going to solve it are people involved in public policy. I, I, I genuinely think that. Um, and that's way beyond my scope. And I'm leaving it there. So I'm dodging the bullet. There you go. <laughs> Hey, do you mind now, Stad? Yeah, like I mean, I I agree. Like I think that I think that any viable solution that's actually going to like properly move the needle um, on obesity prevalence is going to be quite um, interventionist from a government perspective, and people won't like that. Realistically, um, I think that you know it's it 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 does end up meeting a lot of um, ideological barriers, and it also meets a lot of barriers that are positive in other areas and i think that's the challenging thing is that like you you might have to accept some of the trade-offs trade-offs of economic progress for example if you want to um have better public health in some cases like you don't don't necessarily know that's the case but realistically it is it is the food the food supply that has changed more than anything else in the last 50 years and as a result it's very hard to argue that there's going to be any like you see you see these things like you see oh, you know, we're going to put out some uh, posters and education programs and stuff. And it's just, it just ends up being so futile um, in the end, because fundamentally, like if you look at the, the barriers to healthy eating, for example, like it, it's not, it's very rarely education. Like, you know, since you were a kid that you should eat apples and vegetables, you know, like sure, there is a role for, for education. And I think that in, obviously in schools, health education could probably be better. And um, I think we'd all be very much in favor of that. But I don't think that that acts on its own. I don't think that the, the kid who, you know, has all this newfound health knowledge and goes home and there's, you know, chicken nuggets on the dinner table because they were cheap and that was the family could afford uh, or that's what the family could afford on that given day, given the limited food budget and the availability of these foods, etc. I think there's there's many other barriers that extend far beyond um, just the knowledge of what to eat, you know. And this is actually going to be a, a podcast topic in yeah. the future. Um, but I'm glad <laughs> that you did say that public policy is the, the way forward. Now, I'd be very right in my leaning politically and all the people on my side, well, not all the people, like I know, my side. <laughs> I know a lot of individuals on like my side or whatever that would be uh, very much in favor of regulation in certain things, especially like I'd be more of a, uh, I can't even say the word, but a Keynesian uh, economist in terms of how I view the, the role of government and how I view the role of policy from government and the free market, et cetera. But that'll be for a future episode. Um, but uh, yeah, like I, I genuinely think that it has to come from a, a top-down solution. It's not like the market's not going to fix it. Like, why would they? They're, this is like, I just think of it on, look at it as an absolute win for capitalism. Like, great, you're too good, right? You're just, you're just too good for society. We're not ready for these levels of capitalism great like it's an absolute win take it as a win and go cool we need regulation to stop being so successful i'm like okay it's like horse racing you know you put some extra weight on the horse because they're they're too good so that we have a, a more even race like that's literally all it is it's like this you're, you're you're too successful let's you know sandbag you a little bit let's pull you back a little bit because you're you're creating a society that's not conducive to a functioning society you know but again like i know on my side of the the aisle that uh people hate when you mention extra regulation because they uh think they're more of a 
a Friedman, a Friedmanite, well, a Hayek, Hayekian uh, economist in terms of how they view the economy. And to be honest, I'm like, there's, there's just too many flaws of that kind of thinking. And free market does always provide, but uh, people's appetites are insatiable. So that's not always a good thing. Yeah, and I think I think there's another issue there as well. Like that, people often bring up, um, and obviously this is again something we'll talk about in future podcasts. But the the kind of issue of like freedom generally, like people will discuss, like oh, but I want I want to be able to have the right to choose whatever foods I want or whatever. And like that sounds nice in theory, but wouldn't wouldn't it also be nice to that everyone has the that you have the freedom to go into um, a shop and know that you're neurobiology is not going to override your nice your decision making that you had planned because that's what happens you know like you're you at the moment like you've basically got foods that are designed to leverage your neurobiology to make you eat as much as possible and they're overriding your lovely rational decision making that you thought you were going to have when you walked into the shop so i mean you're already sacrificing freedom without realizing it, you know, and, and obviously it depends how you define freedom. Um, but realistically, even if you are someone who's like, I would like the right to choose what I eat, it would actually make your life easier because if there was, if the food supply was different and you were in a different food environment, you wouldn't have to exert the same level of pressure on yourself to have to make these choices and avoid the bad choices if there was, uh, if, if the environment was conducive of that, but yeah, there's pros and cons. Um, I always, uh, I, I just, I always put it down to, um, and I don't know why I always do this, but mentally in my head, I, I always kind of like compare now to like the 1970s. Um, like the 1970s was like the, the cutoff point where the obesity epidemic started right there. Um, but I think an easy way to think about it is like if, if, if we think back to our childhoods or something like that even, um, and I, I can do a, a kind of a, I can, I can project back a lot further than you lads, but um, I, I remember a time where, you know, you, we didn't have, like you said, all of these options overriding our heads before us. Like you go into a supermarket, like if I go into a supermarket now, I, I am literally like a, I don't know, what's an animal that looks at anything that's colorful or sparkly? I, I, I'm, I'm one of those things. If I see something colorful, I'm like, ooh, what's that? I can eat, like, literally, my, my girlfriend makes fun of me the whole time because I'm like, ooh, that's new. I'll try that. There's always something there that's literally saying, I want to be inside you. And I'm like, I want you inside me as well. Um, but if you go back 20, 25 years, there was a lot less of that, okay? It's so normal. I, I, I call it the, the treat yourself mentality that yeah. we have nowadays, that whenever we are out and about, it is an opportunity to treat yourself. Getting a coffee? Oh, sure, I'll have a little pan of chocolate there as well, or, you know, I'll get a, a cheeky slice of carrot cake, you know, because it's there, it's cheap. We've got all of this excess money, and it's just, it's just easy to eat. It's wonderful as well. It's like a, it's an absolutely beautiful experience. Like, um, <laughs> so yeah, we're 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 screwed. We we need to we need to do something about that. <laughs> All right. So you'll be you'll be interested in our, our future episodes then. Um, but the, the final question that I just want to kind of end it on is: if you are an individual, right, and you are afraid of becoming obese, whatever, how how do you navigate the the food environment? Like, how do you do you do you think it is just a case of you know, find a way that you can exercise more um, or, you know, expend more calories and find a way that you can, you know, eat less. Is that all that it comes down to? Like, I know we, like, as an individual, you're not going to solve the, the policies. You're not going to solve whatever. Do you have any advice above and beyond that? Because, like, realistically, that's our advice. Like, find a way to eat less and exercise more. Like, I wish I had better advice for the individual, but, like, I, I don't. So I'm just wondering if you, you do. Uh, am I going to solve the individual obesity problem right here? Okay. Here, listen up. Um, look, there, there's, there's certain habits that people need to, to instill. And it, it is, it is very, very much a, a thing of making them into habits, but like there are certain things that people can do that will make sticking to a diet easier. And they, and at the end of the day, that's what you need to do. You need to find a way that you can stick to a diet open that will help you, fewer calories and eventually lose 
And there are so many different ways of doing that. Like you can increase volume with lower calorie, um, low calorie dense foods uh, like vegetables and fruit, um, you know, adding lots of fiber to your diet, uh, you know, whole grains, legumes, things like that, adding more protein to your diet to keep you satiated, also to help you hold on to a little bit more muscle, getting more exercise when somebody can. Like, the, like I'm only going to say all of the things that nobody wants to do. Okay. Like, you know, p- people want to hear, here's the one solution that's going to get you there. And it does, it doesn't it exist. You're going to have to make some sort of um, compromise at some point in your life. You know, you, you can't live the treat yourself, have cake whenever the fuck you feel like it. Don't do any exercise at all. You know, stay up until whatever hours at night, um, you know, attitude. You can't do that. Um, but the one thing I will say is sleep, I think, is absolutely fundamental. And if you, if you were to look for a place to start and if you're not getting enough sleep, try that because it's just related to so many health behaviors. If you, if you get sufficient sleep, you are more likely to exercise. Whereas if you don't, you're less likely to exercise. Like, you know, like, like I should have gone to the gym this morning, but I was up until two o'clock last night working on the paper, like true flipping story. Um, and I woke up this morning and I said, feck that I'm not going to the gym. Cause I've got to talk to Patty and Gary today. Really. Um, and I, and, and then the same goes for, it has such an effect on your appetite. You know, it, like if you don't sleep, you're going to feel hungrier and you're going to have a hunger that is aimed very, very much so at, you know, high palatability, high sugar, high fat foods. Um, so give yourself every benefit you possibly can by getting enough sleep. And I'm going to put my hands up right here. I don't do that enough and I should, but I think it could benefit a lot of people. Fair enough. Anyway, Gary, do you have anything else to say? No, I won't be preaching about sleep anyway. I'm the same. Right. right. Now, Richie, I'm going to link all your stuff below so people can, can find all of that stuff. Um, do you have any parting words to, to end the podcast on? Um, do you want to let people know where they can find you? Like it's going to be linked below, but maybe you have something you want to draw their attention to, you know, maybe you want to tell them what you're working on, how they can find you, etc. Anything you want to say? Uh, no, just, I'm, I'm over on Instagram. Uh, come say hello. Uh, I'm always open for a chat. Um, that's, that's about it. Oh yeah. Um, and like, feel free to cut this out lads. Cause I'm sure you will. Um, I have a podcast as well, funnily enough. Um, so like, you know, come listen to me. Um, if you don't like it, you know, don't leave a review. If you do, do. You're, always, <laughs> you're also always posting recipes on your Instagram, which is interesting because like I'm way too lazy for that. Like, so it's nice to see. I think you gave a, a granny's recipe there this week, didn't you? Wait, 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 wait. What, what do you mean by a granny's recipe? It may have been my grandmother's recipe, but anybody can use that recipe. You do not need to be a granny to use it. Case in point, <laughs> right? Don't go knock. Don't go knock. Yeah. Well, it was absolutely laced in Jemison, and that's only an Irish granny's recipe, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it was. Uh, it was fairly, um, fairly alcoholic, all right. But yeah, I put a lot of recipes up just because I like cooking, and I think you know, it's 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 a handy way of being able to practically apply, you know, nutrition to life, you know, through through cooking. So yeah. That's what I do. Although that cake was definitely not a, yeah. a particularly <laughs> healthy recipe. Phenomenal. Well, I'm going to end the podcast here. So again, check Richie out. His links are stuff below. We'll be continuing to record this podcast and it'll be out every Monday. You know where to find us. Again, our links below. Anyway, that's it. Peace out. Ciao.